As a business leader, you know attracting top talent is just the beginning. Real growth happens when you lead yourself and others well. Creating a company culture that attracts, nurtures, and retains the best of all things. We'll teach you how to make an impact through a holistic leadership approach. Reframing success in leadership. This is the Talent Magnet Institute podcast with your host, Mike Sipple Jr. Thank you for joining this week's episode of the Talent Magnet Institute podcast. I get the distinct pleasure to sit across from the president and CEO of The Port, Laura Bruner. Laura is also a board president of the Mercantile Library. She's on the ArtsWave board, uh, the Queen City Club board. She also has been a longtime volunteer with the Cincinnati Ballet, Playhouse, and Dan Beard Council. Laura, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you. It's great to be here. So, Laura, you were sharing, I had the opportunity, one, I've known you for many years, but I had the opportunity recently as a part of our Leadership Cincinnati class, Class 42, to hear you speak about these systematic opportunities and some problems, challenges, and opportunities that present a city like ours that's revitalizing itself and in the midst of a tremendous amount of development. And it really struck me that there was so much in that topic that I didn't know. And I thought, boy, it could be great to share with our audience, the thousands of people that listen, to really understand kind of the systematic history as well as the future in terms of how our city is developing itself. And for those who aren't in greater Cincinnati who are listening, thank you for tuning in. I'm certain there's an organization similar to the port in your city, probably with the name of a port authority. And we hope that you learn a lot from this as well. So thank you so much for sharing with us your knowledge. Could you walk us through a little bit of what led you to get passionate about helping revitalize a city while taking care of the people that's within it? Well, I'll say it goes back to Leadership Cincinnati. I was in class 14 a long, long time ago, and it was during that year that I really became attuned to equity issues, equity and inclusion issues and disparities. I honestly feel like I'd grown up in a bubble until that time. Mm. I was about 30 years old and realized, oh, man, life is not the same for our African-American peers. And then as I proceeded in my career, I paid particular attention to that, largely in my volunteer career for a long time. And then when I got into commercial real estate, I gained an understanding of where wealth is built in our country. And the fact that after some research that I did, the real estate in our country is almost exclusively owned by non-African-Americans. Not all white, but they're not African-American. And whether you're a moderate income person where your home is your biggest asset, and so your real estate is really dedicated to a home, or you're a more successful, prosperous person where you have opportunity to invest in commercial real estate, in investment real estate, that's where the rich get richer. And when you look at the census and look at where people that have net worths of over a million dollars, how they have that money invested, largely, there's a very large part of the portfolio that's in commercial real estate. But then when you dig down and you look at how much of that is owned by African-Americans, it's literally zero. And so I really wanted to make a difference in that respect. I wanted to make a difference in wealth building opportunities for African-Americans. And then seven years ago, when I came to my job, I left the private sector and came to the public sector. I had an opportunity to do something about it. A big part of our mission is in neighborhood revitalization. And so we're going into neighborhoods that have suffered due to kind of systemic 
problems that go back to 1930 when the Federal Home Loan Corporation was established and mortgages backed by government guarantees really evolved to encourage homeownership after the Depression. And the government then, the federal government, sent appraisers out all across the country to every major city to do maps and grade neighborhoods from A to F, green to red. And that determined the color, the grade, determined whether or not the government would back that mortgage. And the criteria they used was largely based on homogeneity and how white the community was. Mm. So they labeled neighborhoods like Evanston or Walnut Hills, red or F, and said, we won't guarantee mortgages there. And so across the country, in every major city, there was a white middle-class flight to the suburbs because there, in a homogenous place, they could get home mortgages. And so the statistics in every city are staggering, where decade by decade, the city population decreased, its minority percentage population increased, and poverty increased. So you ended up with neighborhoods being hollowed out and cities having far fewer resources because they lost both population and eventually jobs went with those in many cases. So this resulted in neighborhoods that really had any investment for 90 years. And then after we had the foreclosure crisis in 2007, those neighborhoods were hit harder. So in neighborhoods where we've worked, like the community of Evanston, they had the highest foreclosure crisis, the highest vacancy, highest blight low home ownership. And what we've been able to do with our organization is focus on going back into those neighborhoods and investing public subsidy so that we can literally fix up the real estate so you can attract people back into those communities. And we started doing this six years ago. And then over the last six years, our city, as well as cities across the country, are seeing an emerging popularity of urban neighborhoods. My children want to live in diverse, walkable urban neighborhoods in Washington, D.C. and New York. And that's true. It's true here in Cincinnati. So there is market demand now for people to move back into those neighborhoods. So I feel like we're at a very precarious time that we've got to make sure that the very people we left behind in these neighborhoods so long ago don't get kicked out now that we decide that we like them again. Right. Right. I know when you were sharing this, it was a new concept to me, and I felt embarrassed about it, to be frank, with when I was in our leadership class, when you were sharing about red line districts. Like, I really never, I've heard the concept, but I never really understood the concept and how our banking systems basically you know, were racist. They were... Uh, I know. uh, uh, And it's alarming. That's why I presented it that day. I talk about it almost every day now because you're not alone. It's amazing how little we understand about that. We always talk about unintended consequences. Well, in this case, they were actually intended consequences. Yeah, Yeah, they were very intentional. And that was all across this country, right? It was the federal... Yes. It was the federal government saying, we want more homeownership. We'll guarantee loans, mortgages, so we can have more homeownership, but we're not going to loan money to African Americans. Mm-hmm. Yep. Mm-hmm. And in a city and a country, and to be frank, a world that deals with tremendous racial divide as well as poverty, and the correlation between race and poverty is alarming as well. Yes. This education to be more aware should create more empathy and intentionality of what you and I are doing right. and others in our communities to really try to pull up others with us. Right, right. I think we all need to, whether it's in your job or in your 
volunteer life need to do something to, that says, I am making a difference. I'm going to do my part to change this course. Yeah. I don't remember the exact numbers, but I think the average African-American net worth right now is, it might be $17,000. And the average white wealth is 170. You know, it's literally 10%. And just in the last couple of weeks, I read a study that predicts by the year 2053, that the average net worth will be zero. Hmm. So the economists are not predicting that this is going to get better. So it's going to take some work. Mm -hmm. So we were sharing and having a great discussion with Edward Goh in episode 54 around exclusive capitalism versus inclusive capitalism. And I believe he even referenced your name as a leader who really worked with him, the two of you in partnership many years ago. I'd love for you to describe to our listeners. So you saw an intentional opportunity to bring in others, others meaning non-white, into a conversation to help build an investment portfolio and create an investment group that was predominantly or solely African-American people in our community. Can you share a little bit of, more about that work? Sure. That you this and is when I was in the private sector at Al Nyer, the local commercial real estate firm. Now Molly North is the CEO. She worked very closely with me in this endeavor. We had the opportunity to redevelop the Vernon Manor Hotel, which is in the community of Mount Auburn, part of the Coryville, Avondale, greater neighborhood that had an amazing historical significance in the African-American community as well as the white community. The Beatles performed there. It had a you know, long, great history. It was also in Rain Man. Yeah. And we had a chance, sat vacant for quite a while, and we identified an opportunity to convert that hotel into an office building for Children's Hospital. That was our goal, is to get a lease with Children's Hospital and convert this to office. This was in 2008-9. Commercial real estate market was terrible. And we faced a lot of challenges in making this happen. But I realized that that was the precise moment where I could put my money where my mouth was and actually do something very different. As I came to the development firm, I realized that investment opportunities in commercial real estate go to the people that you know. And it's not that there's been this intentional exclusion necessarily. It's just I need investors. I'm going to go to the people that I know have money, that trust me, that I trust, and I need a decision quickly. And so the cycle just continues to repeat itself. And so I determined that we were going to invite African-Americans in to not only invest, but to be the majority owners in the investment. So I spent time over the course with Molly over the course of a year meeting with about 45 potential investors and ultimately had 13 or 14 of them invest in an LLC that then was the 51% partner with our company in this project that turned out to be a wonderful success. Yeah. yeah, so this was a way in your, so Al Nyer was the holding investor and that 51% invested in the piece of property with Al Nyer? Yes. Okay. Yes. Mm -hmm. okay. Had majority ownership of it. So the separate LLC gets set up for that project and Al Nyer invested along with individual employees 49%. And this African-American group of investors, including Edward Goh, as a leader in that, I invested 51%. So they had majority ownership. That's wonderful. Yeah, I was at a recent panel that I was moderating on inclusive capitalism. And another leader in our community, Dave Hershey, was sharing mm -hmm. the 
intentionality mm-hmm. that you and Molly led at Al Nair. He's led at Interfab for many years. And that's basically giving capital investment opportunities to our employees, right? That's how we've been inclusive. We've been able to make people partners in right. our manufacturing firm, mm-hmm. which again, for many listeners that mm-hmm. might be foreign, like, mm-hmm. well, no, I'm the 100% owner mm-hmm. or my family's the 100% owner. There are ways, many ways that us as CEOs in the market can think inclusively and look at ways to do things differently to help bless and challenge our employees to do more and to gain more that we have the opportunity to lead, right? So you and Molly led that effort at Al Nair, probably had to go to your board and say, I think we should do this. And they said, well, we trust both of you. And then you you mentioned a year. You did, It wasn't something you put together no, in 30 days. No, and that was part of the challenges that typically a real estate investment gets completely baked. You have your performance. You're ready to go. And then you say, all right, now we need $3 million. You go to, you know, take a couple weeks and go raise the $3 million. Well, if you want to completely change the paradigm and invite people in that have never been invited into this space before, you need some time. So we went early with more of a concept and had to do a lot of education on what it means to invest in real estate. Not only is it a great opportunity to make money, it's risky. So the last thing you want to do is get somebody into something that they regret. So we spent time educating over a long period of time while we were raising the debt and getting the actually buying all the real estate and getting the commitment from Children's Hospital and other tax incentives and things. So instead of coming in at the end, in which case we would have never been successful. We had to intentionally start early so we could bring this group along with us. Laura, I'm sure you get asked a lot in terms of the, again, you mentioned the dynamic of people want to be in the urban core. They want to move back downtown. The whole conversation around gentrification and revitalization, how do you strike that balance? Mm. What does that look like? I think our whole countries, or many of the cities in our country are looking at that very issue right now. I honestly didn't think that we'd have that much of a challenge here in Cincinnati. And probably by technical textbook standards, we may not, but there's a lot of moving parts and a lot of pressure. So I contend that we can revitalize the community without gentrifying it. And I draw the distinction that with revitalization, you have new capital investment, you have new people moving in, you have people moving in that may have higher incomes and higher education levels than the legacy residents. But If you're not displacing anyone, if all the existing residents get to stay and feel welcome, not just get to stay, but they're included, and my new marker that I'm putting down is that we grow the percentage of real estate that's owned by African Americans as the rest of the investment comes in so that the appreciation that happens over the next five or 10 years, 20 years, isn't all white. So I think that we really have to work hard to make sure that the legacy residents understand that this revitalization includes them. It's not excluding them. And are you doing, like when I think about what you just described of people moving in from the suburbs into a downtown area and they're meeting neighbors who are different than them, mm-hmm. is there any additional work going on in our community or communities abroad that are helping those two communities come together and gain knowledge and understanding and build friendships together? I think that that is certainly what's necessary. And I don't know that there's any specific one answer to that. I know that in Evanston, where we've done the most amount of our work, we've brought in 27 new homeowners over the course of the last five years as we've redeveloped homes. We literally 
write a letter, a welcoming letter to them as they move into their house. And included in that is, please join the Evanston Community Council Mm -hmm. and get active in the community. So we're working to make sure that they're not moving in in a little island, but they're coming in understanding that they're joining a community that has organizations that exist where there'll be a good chance to build those friendships. Yeah, that's excellent. Excellent. And then as it relates to the additional work of the port and around bringing back middle-class jobs and bringing back revitalizing property, getting land ready for development, that's a large portion of your responsibility, correct? Yes. So in our organization, we have three parts of our strategic plan. One of them is public finance that port authorities across the country do, where we are working to help the private sector fill gaps in complex projects. And then we have the neighborhood revitalization. Well, then across the rest of our work, what we're doing is fixing broken real estate. We're not competing with the private sector. We're acquiring and redeveloping properties that are upside down or have challenging title issues or contamination, environmental contamination. So we're taking properties both in neighborhoods and in the industrial side that are broken and putting them back to productive use. We've talked a lot about the neighborhood side, which really very simply includes houses and business districts. Mm -hmm. It's taking the commercial business districts and those communities that have suffered over these many years, and now they're filled with pawn shops and Dollar General stores and bad carryouts that aren't carrying, where people aren't carrying out anything legal, and getting those repurposed and getting entrepreneurs, hopefully local minority entrepreneurs, back in those. And then on the other side, within our industrial strategy, we're focused on bringing back manufacturing jobs to our county. We've lost 100,000 manufacturing jobs in Hamilton County since 1967. And that's our heritage. You know, we were a manufacturing powerhouse bigger than Chicago for decades and decades, maybe even 100 years. And over time, for a lot of different reasons, we've lost that edge. And manufacturing jobs, as you said, are ideal partially because... 50% of the jobs don't require college education. They pay well, though. The average is often $60,000, $70,000, $80,000, and they're stable because once a manufacturer opens, they're unlikely to move anytime soon. Mm -hmm. They have big capital investments, so they tend to stay. So they're very secure jobs. So our hope is to bring those jobs back to match the skills of the people that are living in these neighborhoods. Mm. That's excellent. Laura, at the time of this particular interview, we have gained 15,000 listeners to our podcast. And the ability, (laughs) got an email this morning that said it was from a client of mine who said, hey, yesterday was the first episode I've listened to. And now I downloaded 58 episodes because, you know, I'm all in. And part of our goal and mission as we set out is to really bring topics to get Mm -hmm. employers Mm -hmm. and leaders who are leading people to, one, think about things that they may Mm -hmm. never thought about. I Mm -hmm. may never thought about what the port does in our Mm -hmm. community and how Mm -hmm. I could partner with them. And again, there are certainly individuals who work very closely with your organization, but there's probably many listening that go, I had no idea. The other is this whole discussion around what can I do as an employer and a leader not just in my workplace, but in my community 
to be more inclusive and to be more intentional about helping people. And then today, the same day you and I are talking, I have two interviews that are going to be happening later today, one with Mark Merrill, the CEO of Family First and All Pro Dads out of Tampa, Florida, and a gentleman by the name of Tim Hanner, who's flipping the mic on me today and interviewing (laughs) me, which will be a lot of fun. Mm -hmm. Tim's a great mentor of mine. But their component really comes into winning in relationships in life. So Mm -hmm. part of our goal is to help leaders succeed in relationships, work, community in life. Mm -hmm. And we're covering a variety of topics. I had the pleasure hearing you speak at a Dan Beard Professional Leadership Network event probably six, seven years ago. Mm -hmm. And one of the areas that resonated with me was how intentional you and your husband have been in your dual successful career paths about leading well in our family and making career decisions based on that. Would you mind sharing a little bit about, I don't know if you remember this talk. Sure. You, yeah. um, I, I, but, I remember talking. I don't remember what I said. Yeah, I, but I, you, uh-huh. you hit a point. Someone was asking, like, how do you have children and you and your husband have both been very successful in our community and are very so well thought of, but you also have made decisions throughout your career of like, okay, now's my time to take this role and I'm taking this promotion. That Kind of how you described and what it resonated with me and it has stuck with me that we have to be intentional about our personal lives while we're achieving success in our career. Because if those two things get out right. of line, mm-hmm. the deck of cards falls, right. right? Can you share just a little bit with our listeners well, that it, might be it's thinking funny about? now our son is 30 and our daughter is 27. Mm-hmm. So it's a long time ago that we had to f- – balance. Mm-hmm. Uh, but over the years, we both started off in public accounting. So we are in careers that are very demanding from a time standpoint. We waited 11 years to have kids. And by then, Paul was United Dairy Farmers as our children were smaller. He typically worked on all throughout the time there. He would work on Saturday mornings. But during tax season, I obviously would have to work all day on Saturday and work two or three nights during the week. And so he had to make sure that he had that balance and could accommodate it on his career. Later, when our daughter was in high school, he had two jobs successively that required him to travel nationally and internationally. So he was gone quite a bit. He waited for that until our son was in college, our daughter was finishing high school. And honestly, it gave me time to spend with my daughter that I wouldn't have had otherwise. We had a lot more one-on-one time, which was mm-hmm. good. I remember early on when the children were born, Paul basically giving me a rule because I probably, I'm the one that would tend toward workaholism (laughs) more than him. We had a rule that if I was doing anything before 8.30 in the morning or after 5.30 at night, it better be good. So it's not that you can never do something, you know, have early morning appointments or evening ones, but it better be special. So I was intentional about the effect of me mostly by not, I didn't go on boards, didn't participate in volunteer activities that had evening board meetings. Mm. I can change that around. So now uh, the board meetings have to be at lunch. You know, I can fit that into my professional career. And honestly, I never played, neither one of us ever played golf. And mm. that was one of the things we kind of conceded, not that we would have ever been good anyway, but that automatically takes you, yeah. you know, away uh, yeah. for longer periods of time. Yeah. Yeah. Now, I think it's really helpful as we as leaders think about that. And I know there's been times where I, like yourself, serve on many boards mm-hmm. and many committees around the region and outside the region. 
but being thoughtful about the right. impact that has on right. us personally right. and the energy drain that can be, as well as those around us, our families, and our other additional very important responsibility. We had a podcast episode with a gentleman by the name of Jackie Bledsoe in episode 43, and that episode was specifically on, the title is Marriage Strategy, mm-hmm. but it comes down to relationship strategies, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And how many of us would jump at the opportunity to go into a leadership program for our career or be encouraged by our employers to do so, but how few of us have actually created a strategy to live well with no matter what our marriage looks like or whatever our relationships look like. I was recently meeting with a CEO client of ours at Centennial, and I always ask the question, like, do you have any 3 a.m. friends? How are you doing? Mm -hmm. Right? Mm -hmm. And this particular gentleman shared, I have a couple, but it's been a while Mm -hmm. since I've spent time with them because I'm so busy. I've got so many responsibilities. And my encouragement between our next meeting was, hey, why don't you reach out to those individuals and see how they're doing and try to force yourself to- You have to have some balance. Have balance. What I have always thought of in mentoring, I've talked to people about is you've got your career, your community engagement, and your family. And to try to get those three rings to overlap as much as possible. Mm. Paul and I were both, he was the president of the chamber orchestra board when I was president of the ballet board when our children were very, very small. And those kids, they knew the dancers, they knew the musicians, they were backstage, they were very much involved in what we, we probably, I don't think my son will ever go to ballet again, but we included them in that work very much. So it was more seamless that this is something we're doing that's different than family. So mm-hmm. it includes family. Mm-hmm. And, and obviously that- my time with Dan Beard was very much like that too. And I would assume that the community organizations loved it. Yeah, Like I think here's so. kids experiencing yeah. next generation right. and right, right. an opportunity there. No, thank you for sharing that. I just, one, thank you for sharing it many years ago. Mm-hmm. I think my mm-hmm. oldest at that time was like four. Mm-hmm. And I got involved in the professional leadership network when I think Jacob was six months old. Oh, wow. Um, mm-hmm. And here that organization has continued. Is I just it, got a uh, recent invitation to the oh, next good. dodgeball tournament that's oh, happening. That's terrific. Uh, I'm glad each it's summer. So still going, uh, on. Still going mm-hmm. on. And I'm still focused on their challenge camp. Right. So the good. inner city I youth camp yep. and investing right. in kids to give them an opportunity mm-hmm. to get mm-hmm. outside and experience mm-hmm. nature. Um, so what I would love to dive a little bit further into, when we reference home ownership, me as an employer – what can I do mm-hmm. to help my employees? Where do you feel the line is of getting personal and really helping our employees achieve their personal goals, mm-hmm. not just their professional ones? Yeah, I was actually thinking about that as you were talking earlier as far as giving advice to people on how to make a difference. I don't know the answer to that. I don't know if you can say we as the executive team, the partners, want to encourage home ownership, and maybe it's bringing in, probably the most neutral thing to do is bring in a speaker to talk about personal financial planning and the importance of home ownership as a part of that. And I think you could have a conversation afterward that if anybody wants help, that you'd be willing to help facilitate that. Maybe that's offering the benefit of financial counseling. Mm -hmm. And obviously different organizations, if you look at a manufacturing company, their employee base obviously has completely different needs than a professional service firm. Mm-hmm. But I think that that probably would be smart in many situations. We're doing 
lots of education. We're spending time ourselves at the port educating African-American audiences about financial health. Because if we want higher ownership of real estate, people have to be prepared for that. Mm-hmm. They have to understand what it means, and then they have to have their house of cards in order. They have to know what their credit score is. They have to know what it means, what it means to have a line of credit or a second mortgage. There's a lot of financial literacy mm-hmm. that isn't taught in school. And that actually might be a good conversation with the UC Economic Center. Mm-hmm. Julia Heath might be a good speaker for you. Yeah. That might tie that back together well. Yeah. I know we have, so we volunteer and support Cincinnati Works quite a bit in the mm-hmm. community. Oh, and they offer a program where they can bring in basically a counselor into your place of employment. Mm-hmm. I think some of the surprise to most is that it's mm-hmm. not just the individuals on the shop floor mm-hmm. or working in the hourly ranks that have needs, right? Mm-hmm. We all have needs. Right. We all have things well, going right. on in our lives. Exactly. We all have questions that right. we don't quite mm-hmm. understand and could use some outside support in. And we have clients of ours, manufacturers, that mm-hmm. have brought in like financial literacy courses into and have also brought in, you know, an attorney to help you work right. out things that you know, may have experienced when you were 17 to 19 to 20 years old that plagues you at 43, right. Right. right? And I think just being conscious and aware that we as an employer can help our employees succeed in life, right? not just how can they benefit me as right. an employer, but helping people achieve. And they were sharing a little bit, Dan Meyer was sharing mm-hmm. that his retention rates went from like, you know, in their industry of distribution can be a 200% turnover, mm-hmm. and theirs is 17%, yeah. right? And you can gain the most loyal employees right. by just helping, helping people them. Right. be successful. Right. And I hear that with the education that you're doing and the things that you're doing, I applaud you for that and encourage you to keep doing mm-hmm. as much of that as possible because our community needs it, and you're setting an example to organizations in our community and our neighborhoods. Mm-hmm. Like, we can be doing more. Right. We can right. be helping people succeed versus just wishing that mm-hmm. they – just wishing they would succeed or why don't they understand. But right. you're leaning right. in and helping people gain knowledge mm-hmm. that maybe their parents or grandparents never had either. Right, right. And giving them an opportunity. So thank you so much for that. You're welcome. Um, Do my best. So, Laura, we will encourage in our show notes for people to connect with The Port. And also, are there any particular books you would encourage our listeners to pick copies up of to learn more about redlining? Or The way I actually learned about it, honestly, was reading the book Prayer for the City by Buzz Bissinger. It takes place in Philadelphia. He followed Ed Rendell his first four years term as mayor. And so part of it's about Ed Rendell, which is actually interesting. Part of it's about his chief of staff, who is fascinating. Part of it's about Philadelphia. But the rest of it is about how this happened. I mean, he really tells the story so well of how our country and our big cities have changed since redlining started in 1930. So I think that is an important book for people to understand. And there are others that might be a little bit more technical, The Color of Law and The Color of Money. But I think that told in a story format, uh, you can't beat a prayer for the city. As you're talking about how can we help our employees and how can we be more intentional, I would also recommend that your listeners and your clients at Centennial encourage employees to get involved. You know, To not say, I'm in the private sector, I'm not in the public sector, but to realize that in order for our society to be 
it's most successful. We need everybody kind of leaning in. We need people involved in your local community council. We need good people on school boards. That's one of the most important places. We need good people in elected office (laughs) at all levels. Mm -hmm. I'm personally affected very, very much by our city council and our county commissioners. So people need to vote. People need to care. They need to stay informed. So at the very least, I encourage everyone to vote. That's great. Yeah, at episode 18, we had Dan Hurley speaking to our listeners. And one of the things that resonated with us is a quote we put out that you can't be fully human until you step into the public arena and walk in someone else's shoes. Mm -hmm. And if you want to be a great leader, you need to get involved. Mm -hmm. And I think that resonates with exactly what your call to action just now. So thank you for that. Thank you to our listeners for tuning in to this week's episode. We hope you will take the opportunity to learn and dive into these topics. I'm excited to dive in further into these topics and become even more knowledgeable and identify ways that we can help you succeed and help those that you're employing and that are in your community succeed. So Laura, thank you for this time and I look forward to our next conversation. You're welcome. It's great to be with you, Mike. Sometimes it's the little things that make a big difference. A post-it note and two minutes can make a huge difference in your workday. Find out more at talentmagnetinstitute.com slash post-it. The Talent Magnet Institute podcast is powered by Centennial, a talent strategy and executive search firm, and the Talent Magnet Institute. You can engage with us at Talent Magnet I on Twitter, or Talent Magnet Institute on LinkedIn and Facebook. Please communicate by using hashtag Talent Magnet. Find us in your favorite podcast app to subscribe, rate, and leave a review, as well as share with a colleague. You can also listen at talentmagnetpodcast.com. Our podcast studio is based in greater Cincinnati, Ohio. We are supported by our listeners, clients, and partners from all over the world. The Talent Magnet Institute podcast is made possible by a great team that includes Janelle Spence and Christine Lewis of Centennial, Josh Chappelle and Adam Smith of Soundpress, produced by Chris Madine of New Fidelity Studios, and Audra Casino and Megan Doherty of One Stone Creative. Music written by DJ Corbett and Chris Madine. And myself, your host, Mike Zippel Jr., Thank you for joining us on the journey of developing leaders to succeed in relationships, work, community, and life, reframing success in leadership.